Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. Want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, and welcome everyone into the Determined Truth Podcast. I'm here with the Rob Dalrymple. The, and I'm here with the Vinny Angelo. I, I, I was trying to think of something noble and regal to give you, but I have no title for you. Hey, uh, we mentioned in our last episode that today's series that we're in, it's going to be a little different than our normal uh, bantering. And so, Rob, you've been leading a class on the gospel, and uh, we want to embed those into the podcast stream so people can have access to that. So today's episode is going to be week three of your class. So, Rob, tell us why this is not week two of the class. Yeah, so what we decided to do was week two of the study really actually reflected on the podcast that you and I did that launched on September 14th, titled What is the Great Commandment or the Greatest Commandment? So I thought there's no need to actually edit that pod, edit the audio for that class and represent it and repackage it because it's the similar, if not the same material that you and I did that launched on September 14th. So if you want to listen to week two of that class, go back and, our, and listen to What is the Greatest Commandment that we did on September 14th, if you haven't already. Okay, cool. So what are you actually going to do and what are you covering in today's uh, episode, which was your week three class? Yeah. So week three of the class, then we're asking the question, what, what does it mean to follow me? You know, Jesus says throughout the gospel, Mark, follow me, or they followed him. And so what does follow me look like? What, what does that mean? So we're cool. Well, let's do that. And let's do that immediately. See what I just did there? No one else is going to get it. Come on. That's funny. <laughs> no one else is going to get it. Come on. Someone's going to get it. No, no one is going to get it. <laughs> All right, I want to welcome you to our third week of the study on what is the gospel. And if we begin by saying, okay, what's the gospel? You would answer by saying, you have to unmute yourself to, say, to answer. Jesus is Lord. Very good. All right, excellent. All right, so Jesus is Lord. And the reality of that is we're going to spend a lifetime trying to unpack what that means. So we have this simple definition, Jesus is Lord. I like it because it's simple. It's easy. It's um, uh, memorizable. Um, and it's succinct, but at the same time, the depth and the gravity of what that means is something that we're probably going to be struggling with for the rest of our life. Jesus is Lord. And I think every day we go, oh, yeah, he's Lord. And I've been, I've been Lord of that area of my life. I've been Lord over there. Oh, you know, or right at this moment, I have been acting as if he's Lord. So that's, that's number one. Number The second week that we did, last week we said, okay, well, we looked at what is the greatest commandment. And we looked at that passage because Jesus is Lord is actually what he, they were saying. Hey, are you saying that you're the Lord? I mean, what's the greatest commandment? You know, because what Jesus was actually doing was saying, well, the greatest commandment is to love and serve me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he doesn't take the bait. He simply says, love the Lord, your God. And like, okay, yeah, well, and there's no one else besides him, right? And Jesus doesn't seem to say a whole lot. But we also looked at the second great commandment. And the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So the second great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm sorry, it's to love your neighbor as yourself. And in Luke's gospel, which we looked at, it was one of those, well, who is my neighbor? That's the question in Luke chapter 10. Who is my neighbor? And, and see, Jesus was playing funny with that too, because what he was doing, he was defining the neighbor as, unmute yourself to answer the question. Who is, how was Jesus defining neighbor? Everyone. Everyone. Yeah, everyone. And that's simply not going to go over well. 
But I noted that if you study the history of the Jewish people up to this point in time, well, about 2,000 years ago, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Then after that, they kind of had some problems with some of their neighbors, and eventually the Philistines and others kind of gave them troubles. And then they came under Babylonian or Assyrian captivity, and then Babylonian captivity, and then the Persian captivity, and the, the Median Persian captivity, and then the Greek uh, occupation, and then Roman occupation. For 2,000 years, they've been suffering under the hands of foreign empires. And the whole idea is, God, will you send us this Messiah who will liberate us from this foreign oppression? And so now this Messiah comes along, Jesus, and says, yeah, that's me. Oh, by the way, I'm the Lord your God that you're supposed to love, serve with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And like, ah, uh, what? Oh, and by the way, and the kingdom's for everybody. And like, no, no, the kingdom's for us. The whole idea of this Messiah is this Jewish kingdom from Jerusalem for the Jewish people and expel the enemies and get rid of the enemies and punish the enemies and, and bring God's wrath upon the enemies. And so that's the two, the two great commandments look simple. But they're not, and they're, and they're not simple. And even though we all say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we love everybody. You know, my church, we love everybody. It's like, well, yeah, I'm not sure that's really true. And most of the churches I've been in, I think they mean to love everybody. And I don't think they always realize how we're not loving everybody. But just even sometimes our attitudes and our actions towards people, uh, the way we look at people, the way we do a double take, or the way we even treat people. Tonight... Uh, we're going to continue the next part of the conversation, and we're looking at the Gospel of Mark and the word follow or follow me and all, all these references to follow me uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And if you recall, I think it was week one, I think it was week one, I said I didn't like uh, word studies. Be careful about word studies, because what most people do with a word study is they say, oh, the word is this, and, and, and it means, and they find, you know, every word, by the way, has five or six or sometimes 10 or 12 different meanings. And so what they do is they go to a dictionary, or in Greek and Hebrew, it would be called a lexicon. And they go, oh, the, the Greek word can have these possible 10 different meanings. I'm going to choose this one for this verse because it makes the passage say what I want it to say. And obviously, in the hands of someone who's not well-trained, that can be really, really dangerous. So I think for the most part, not always a good idea. What you can do and should do, however, when you're doing a study of the, of the text, and this takes a good translation that's pretty consistent. And they're not always, always consistent because language just doesn't allow you to be consistent like that. But finding a good translation that's consistent is finding a word that it continues to appear throughout a particular book. So Mark's gospel, the word follow, we're going to look at it. And we're going to go, well, what does this mean? And how is it being used? And the answer, by the way, is not what does the word mean? The answer is how is it being used? How is the author using it? So let's go look. Yes, 118. At once they left their nets and followed him. All right. You know what, John? Actually, we're going to look at this passage in a little bit more detail anyways in a few minutes. Why don't you read verses 16 uh, through 20? Okay. 16 through 20 in chapter 1. Very 16 good. through 20. Okay. This is the NIV, 16 through 20. Okay. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. All right, very good. Okay, um, this will be Mark 2 out of the NRSV. The subtitle is Jesus Calls Levi. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. 
and he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Uh, Linda, I think it's you, 524. And he went off with him, and a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. Okay, yeah. Now pay attention, note that one, because we might not come back to that passage in depth, but I, but I do want to make sure that we make note of that. So somebody puts an asterisk by, hey, Rob, you were going to talk about 524. Bill, I think you got 6-1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. And it's the Greek word is follow, depends on your translation. So Sandy, you got, uh, you have 834, right? Actually, uh, Sandy, if you don't mind, you want to read 34 to 38, because we're going to spend some time in that passage anyways. Okay. Uh, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whosoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Anna, uh, 938. This is an intriguing one. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Okay, right? Yeah, we, we wouldn't let him do it because he wasn't following us. Andrew and Paula, 10, 21. Oh, do you have 21, 28, and 52? Yes. So, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. Okay. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Verse 52, and Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Gracie, 11.9, right? Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Trish, I think you have 14.54. Yeah. Uh, and Peter followed him afar off, even into the place of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. 1541. Okay. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. What do you guys see? Obviously, the word follows appearing quite often, but what do you see? I see with... Um, with you know, in the beginning there, basically drop everything what you're doing and just come, come follow me. Mm, yeah, radical. An invitation. Keep saying the same thing to follow. Yeah. Okay. I see him building a, building an army, a little army. Oh, interesting. All right. Of, uh, well, how about this? Of what kind of what people, I mean, of who? Believers, believers and, and obeyer people that will obey and common folk. Mm. Okay. All right. Common folk. Can you be more specific than that? Even uh, laborers, uh, okay. fishermen, uh, tax, collectors. tax collectors, right? Yeah. I think it was Anthony's verse, right? 215. He's at the table with many tax gatherers and sinners and they were following him. Right. And notice, by the way, he's sitting at a table. So why is he saying they, they were following him? Because they're sitting at a table. 
but you could as soon as you as soon as you see that like wait a minute they were following him but he's not going anywhere right now he's sitting at a table you immediately go hey this word follow might be something important because maybe it is that word imitation here yeah right well it, it, yeah it, invitation it, to imitate me or, and yeah follow it is, my way that actually is correct in the um, okay so think, who else think, is, I'm, I'm sorry, but i think consistent with what andrew was pointing out is it's it's a huge surrender yes it's literally in, in a sense yeah, they're giving up their lives, but they're, it's almost as if they're willingly desiring to see where he's going, which they're going to learn is the cross, of course, but it is that, that first step in getting there towards the cross. Okay, very good. Yes. Sacrificing their families. Oh, very good. Yeah. Yeah, because John and, and uh, James and John jump out of the boat and leave their father behind in the boat. Um, I noticed a sense of urgency. Okay. Anybody know there was one verse that kind of, well, there's a couple of verses that kind of kind of odd. Uh, you probably won't get this because it's too vague of a question, but okay, that's kind of awkward. Pictures yeah. of men on that very first one. That okay, might have yeah, been that, yep. that might have been odd. It's see, okay, yeah. I'm fishing for fish, but you want me to fish for men. Okay. Yeah, right, right. What does yep. that mean? Okay, yeah, exactly. What does it mean? Good question. I'm thinking of 524. There's something odd in 524 if you want to turn there. So here, it's a crowd that's following him, right? But what else does it say? Pressing on him. Yeah, they were pressing in on him. The crowds are a hindrance. Now, but oftentimes, if you go back to chapter one, uh, let's see if I can think of the reference right off the top of my head here. 5 36 37 mark 1 36 37 jesus goes off to pray early in the morning they go out to find him where, where he's at it says they hunted for him in the greek and verse uh, 17 uh, 37 they found him everyone's looking for you and he said let's go somewhere else then let's go to the towns nearby so i can preach there it's like whoa wait, okay wait what's going on right uh, isn't that a good thing that everyone's looking for you well okay yeah but i'm done with that crowd let's go to the next one and so sometimes in, in the gospel of Mark, the crowds are going to be a hindrance to Jesus. In the very next story, in fact, well, maybe not the next story, but in chapter two, he heals a paralytic, but they couldn't bring the paralytic to him because it was such a great crowd that it cut a hole in the roof. So the crowds are, are in the way. Mm -hmm. So, and you think, well, no, Jesus actually, he wants the crowds. Well, not really, because he doesn't mind them and he feeds them, right? 5,000 and 4,000 on two different occasions. But he also like, yeah, you know, they're getting in my way. They're hindering me. They're pressing in on me. Uh, his family couldn't see him in chapter three, et cetera. So yeah. there's probably a, a fine line between those who want to hear and listen and learn. And then the rock star status. Okay. Yes. That, okay. That's actually a really significant point that we're going to bring up by the time we're all done with this. Right. So yeah. All right. Anybody else? What about the ones where the disciples like, you know, we wouldn't let these guys cast out demons because they're not following us. Because you would think that following Jesus is like the prerequisite, right? I mean, as far as all the verses that we read about following him, following him, following him, following him, following him. And all of a sudden, well, these guys aren't following us. Okay, well, they must be out. Like, no, Jesus rebukes the disciples. That doesn't mean that they're not out. I think that's, it almost like, well, I thought following him was like a prerequisite, but it can't be if Jesus doesn't like, no, don't hinder them just because they're not following us. And he goes on to say, by the way, don't hinder them because no one can speak evil in my name and, and do miracles. Right, let's go back, starting in Mark chapter 1. And note, of course, that the, the first passage that John read, verses 16 through 20, 
is really the beginning of his ministry, right? So the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he gets baptized by John the Baptist. The spirit falls upon him, which is extremely significant that we'll get into later on when we discuss what is the kingdom of God. That's in verse 12. And then Jesus comes along and the first thing he says is the time is fulfilled, the kingdom, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we've kind of talked about that. And then verse 16, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee and Simon and Andrew are there on a boat. They were casting their nets in the sea because they were fishermen. I like that. And Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed them. And by the way, another, another interesting study, word to study is the word immediately. It occurs all over the place, especially in the early chapters of the gospel of Mark. And you really want to think it has some really big theological significance. But if you can find out what that theological significance is, you can probably write a dissertation because no one's ever figured it out yet. I know he just uses it all the time, but we can't really figure out. There's not a consistent pattern. So anyways, but in other words, they followed him immediately. Now, going on a little further, he saw James and uh, John, sons of Zebedee. Now, note that Zebedee is mentioned by name. And, and again, one of the things I want to kind of talk about a little bit is, is how to read the Bible a little bit better. As soon as you see uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and later on, it's going to become, what's the deal with the son of Zebedee? Why would he say that? Why would Mark say that in, in his writing? People probably knew who Zebedee was. They knew who he was. Yeah, they, the, the readers, know. remember we said a little bit last week that the readers seem to know some of the story. Like after John had been thrown into prison, you're like, what do you mean after John? We don't, we don't know anything about John being thrown. In. in fact, by the way, it's in Mark chapter six that he talks about John being thrown into prison. But in chapter one, after he's thrown into prison, you're like, uh, when, when did that happen? The readers already know certain things. So all right, verse 20, immediately he called them. And there's that word immediately again. And they uh, left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired hands. Now, this is significant because in the ancient world, the sons are to inherit the father's business in order to provide for the well-being of the father and the mother when the father and mother get too old to be cared for. That's the social security system right there, folks. As soon as those kids jump out of the boat, dad's like, uh, what do I do now? Who do I give with the hired hands? Do I give the business to the hired hands? Right? This the story of Abraham. Hey, God, you know, you told me I'd have a son and all that. You know, right now, everything I, I, I own, and by the way, Abraham was pretty wealthy. It's all going to go to my, my servant's kid. It's like, I can't, I can't have that. They're leaving their father in the boat. I, you could say ditching him in a sense and following after Jesus. And of course, it's this immediately sense. Right now, I'm going to comment a little bit more on some things in the notes that, that I'll comment on in a second. But let's go to chapter two for a minute, and then I can bring up both stories at the same time. In chapter two, I think Anthony read it, verses 14 and 15. Uh, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and we suspect that this is actually Matthew, and that maybe Levi is his birth, Alphaeus, of course, is his father, and, and maybe he's known also. Follow me, and he got up and followed him. So here's a map. This is basically the northern part of Israel. There, there's Jerusalem down here in the south, and then uh, Samaria, Judea, Samaria, and then up here, this orange is Galilee. I don't know if you're listening on the podcast, you cannot see the colors of the map, but Galilee is the north. And uh, west, it's the west side of the Sea of Galilee. It's the region, and it says Upper Galilee and Lower Galilee uh, on the map here. Over to the east, and this is the Jordan River, by the way. The Jordan River actually runs all the way south into the Sea of Galilee, and then it runs south out of the Sea of Galilee. It's the same river. They, they don't change its name. So, the, so this is the Jordan River, the northern part of the Jordan River. 
And on the other side of the Jordan River is the region of Golanitis. Right? And then that's, that takes up the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And then the south southeast corner is this region called the Decapolis. Deca meaning 10 and polis meaning city or 10 cities. And you see Hippos, uh, Gamala, Gadara, uh, Scythopolis, Pella. These are there are 10 Roman cities that the Romans actually built on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. This is, this is the end of the Roman Empire, essentially. And they built these 10 Roman cities so that even though you're way over in the distant regions of the Decapolis, you know you're in Rome. I mean, it feels like Rome. If you ever go to this part of the world, it's modern-day Jordan, and you see the ruins of these cities, they're magnificent. They're unbelievable cities. But what I want to mention to you is this. Galilee, where Jesus does most of his ministry. So the Gospel of Mark is going to have a little bit of a, of a geographical thrust to it. The first 10 chapters of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is basically only in Galilee. And he's circling around Galilee. And, and maybe he goes up a little farther north, which is not actually shown in this particular map here, Caesarea Philippi and, and what have you. But for the most part, he's in Galilee, and it's a Jewish region. And now notice here, um, on the northwest corner, almost a due north uh, corner, is the city of Capernaum. This is the largest fishing village in the first century world. And it's where Peter lived. Well, where Peter's mother-in-law lived. And so we suspect, long story short, that Peter was probably caring for his mother-in-law because his wife didn't have any brothers and maybe she was old and a widow. But because Peter is actually from Bethsaida, which is actually not on this map. I'm not sure why, but Bethsaida is like right here where the, the P is on Capernaum, right across the river in, in Galanitis. Right? The significance is this, is that Capernaum is where Jesus does a lot of his ministry from, but it's a border city. This map is showing you that when you come from Gal so if you're coming up here from Damascus, which is up here in the north, if you're coming from Damascus, and if you're coming from the Orient, modern-day Iran, you know, Persia, and all those areas, you're going to come through Damascus, and then you're going to cut to the coast, and you're going to go down the coast of modern-day Israel to Egypt. You're going to come right through Capernaum. The major highway goes through Capernaum. Now, there's another highway that ran down here to the, on the east side of, of the Jordan River and King's Highway and all that good stuff. But this is a major border town. What that means is, is that you're going to have tax collectors that are collecting transportation tax, basically. Hey, you want in this region? Great, pay a tax. And that's Matthew he, or Levi. He's a tax collector in Capernaum. Now, here's the, here's the reality. When you read these two stories, the, the stories of, of four disciples who jump out of the boats, two of them leave their dad and come follow Jesus. And Matthew jumps out of the tax collector's booth and follows Jesus. You just read the stories. You're kind of like, Wow, you know, pastors love these passages because it's like they just say, Jesus says, follow me, and, and, and they just they just dropped everything and they followed him as though it's a blind, almost irrational following him. Now, again, that preaches really well, but I'm not sure that Mark's readers would have actually gotten it that way fully. Because especially if Mark's readers know the story, Peter, we're told in the Gospel of John, and this is in your notes, chapter one passage. We're told in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that Peter and Andrew and James and John were disciples of John the Baptist, and that when Jesus went over to be baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist said, go follow that guy. Now, we don't know what transpired after that, except we know, well, Jesus went off into the desert to get tempted for 40 days. It appears that Peter, Andrew, James, and John went back up to Galilee and went back to the fishing business. Now, we can surmise, and it's probably a reasonable surmising, but we're filling the gaps, that Jesus told them, hey, guys, I'll come get you when I'm ready. 
So when they see Jesus on the shore, they're like, hey, follow me. It's like, boom, they jump out. Like they don't even recognize him. They just jump out of the boat because they've been waiting for Jesus. So as, as much as it's like great preaching, hey, Jesus says, follow me. And they just drop everything and follow. There actually was more preparation in store. You figure that James and John said, hey, dad, here's the deal. Jesus is, you know, you told us to go follow that John the Baptist guy. And we did that. And he, he, he's legit. And he said, follow Jesus. We're going to go follow the Messiah, dad. And I hope you got a way to take care of this business, right? And maybe that other brother, we don't know. But arrangements might have been made to some extent. It wasn't as just a blind, irrational following him. Same thing with Matthew. If Jesus is teaching around in Capernaum, as we know from the other gospels, Matthew's in a tax collector's booth. Now, here's the deal. He's a Jew. He's, he's the son of Alphaeus, Levi. <laughs> a Levi is a Jewish name, right? The Levitical priesthood. Yet he works for Rome. And that makes him an outcast. It makes him a sinner. It makes him one of those people that the Pharisees, Sadducees, and everybody else said, you can't be in this kingdom. You're not part of it. No matter what we do, you're, you are out. And Matthew worked for Rome. In other words, he's actually benefiting off of the Roman occupation of the Jewish people. The oppressive Roman army pays you and you work for them willingly. You're out. So you wonder, and again, this is a speculation again, was Matthew sitting in his tax collector booth and goes, oh, that Jesus guy, he looks legit. I think that he really is the Messiah that we've been hearing about all these years, but I blew it. I can't follow him. I've already conspired with Rome. And so Jesus walks by and says, follow me. He's like, oh, absolutely. I didn't think I'd ever have this opportunity. Maybe that's, what, you know, maybe that's why Matthew jumps out because he'd been waiting for this moment, but he didn't think that someone like him actually even qualifies. And of course, the next verse, right, is tax gatherers and sinners. That's this larger group of people who don't follow the kosher laws of the pharisaical rules and laws. They're sinners, They're because you know, everyone's a sinner. Sinners are those who don't follow, follow the law. That's what's happening there. All right, very good. Any questions or comments? On, on either of those passages. Go to chapter um, 8 now, verses 34 through 38. All right, 8, 34 through 38. And I don't remember who read it, but uh, some, one of you guys did. Thank you very much. All right, now, here's the thing. If you're following the word follow and trying to figure out what it means, well, we know the definition of the word. There's nobody that's going to walk up and say, the Greek word akalutha'o means, it means follow, right? That means someone's leading and you're behind them. And it can have all kinds of uses, just it, there's no significant nuance. But what we've seen is that the word's important because it's pointing out, hey, following Jesus is the whole point. Follow me, follow me, follow me. And now we get to perhaps the key passage where we actually find out what follow me means. And I was, what does it mean? Well, actually, what he means is follow me to what? Anybody, I think Anthony alluded to it earlier, right? Follow me, follow me where? Where's he going? To the cross. He's going to the cross. He's going to the cross. Yeah. Now, this passage actually comes at the end of where Jesus is up in Caesarea Philippi, which wasn't on the map that I showed you up to the north. And he asked his disciples, okay, all right, who do the people say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah, one of the prophets. Well, who do you think I am? Well, uh, you're the Christ. Mark 8, 29. You're the Christ. Look at verse 30, though. He warned them to tell no one about him. That kind of seems like the opposite of what they're supposed to do, right? I mean, isn't the whole idea, go tell everybody? And he says, don't tell anybody. And then look at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. 
be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. After three days, rise again. He was stating the matter plainly, verse 32. He was stating the matter plainly. And the reason why Mark says that is because Jesus was always talking in parables. He didn't say anything without a parable. Chapter 4, verse like 30 or so. Then it says, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So parables are something that if you have ears to hear, you'll, you'll understand because if you go to Jesus, he'll tell you the answer. But you might not figure it out if you don't have ears to hear, right? if, if you don't come to Jesus to find out what the answer is. But now he's not speaking in riddles. He's not speaking in parables. He's speaking plainly. Can and, I may yeah, ask please. a question? Of course. Can you, go back, can you go back to verse 30? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> why is he saying don't why is he saying don't tell anybody right yeah uh, uh, for this reason if you go back to chapter three remember we discussed this a little bit that the way mark wrote wrote his gospel was he fronted the opposition to jesus at the beginning of his gospel so three verse six they were seeking to kill him so they're they're already seeking to kill him and now oh. remember i mentioned just a few minutes ago that mark has this geographical schema for for his gospel He's always in Galilee, always in Galilee, always in Galilee. Then he goes up to the farthest north, which wasn't on the map that I showed you, to Caesarea Philippi. He's going to go back to Galilee, kind of make a circle around it, and then go to Jerusalem. And he's going to Jerusalem, we know what for, to die. And the reality is now is, maybe a crude way of saying it would be, well, he's given you three years to follow him. If you haven't followed him yet, you don't need to tell anybody anymore. We, we've done all the telling we need to do. Now we need to, to, do, to do the next step. And that would be the cross. However, I'm going to let you in on a secret. I really am the Christ. And that's what they were trying to get Jesus to confess. Are you really, are you actually saying this or not? Because power uh, brokers in Jerusalem, we don't like you. We don't like what you're doing. Most notably because Jesus wouldn't like kiss up to them, give them their kudos too. He was telling them, you have to repent also. And don't be like the scribes who like to walk around in flowing robes and, and fancy greetings in the marketplaces, which he's going to say that in chapter 11. If he comes outright and tells the disciples, as he's doing now, I am indeed the Christ. If they go tell anybody, it's going to get him killed before his time. How long he has left to live, we don't know. It's kind of, you can't look at the Gospels as chronological, sequential, and impose time on it. But the point of the story is he's on his way to Jerusalem to die and they're going to kill him before then if, if everybody finds out that this, he's actually saying this out, outright. So, right? Rob, Rob, yeah, please. I, I don't know exactly how this intersects, but I'd always kind of learned it that as well, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. So if he hadn't had opportunity to give all the Jews their own opportunity, it wasn't time for the Gentiles. Because when you go to John, he knows the time has come when, when, the, uh, when, when the Greeks approach him. Now the yeah, Gentiles okay, are coming mass. Okay. Yeah, but I, I'm not sure exactly what you're getting at here, because I totally agree with you. But I think the answer is the Jewish mission is complete. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's complete. So you don't need to tell anybody because we've already told everybody as far as that's concerned. And we're really reading into the text a whole lot right now. So let's be careful about that, right? We're, we're really reading into the text something that's not there. I think the best thing that we can surmise is, is that because they would have had him killed before he was ready to die. And he's, okay. he's ready to go to Jerusalem to die, but he's not ready to die so now the next thing is, uh, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Right? Now, what's interesting about that, by the way, is we always, I, I hear every once in a while people teaching about Peter and they kind of make fun of him because he's always the loud mouth. He's always the one to speak up. He's always the one getting in trouble. Hey, hey, geez, I'll come out of the boat. 
if, it, if Peter is the leader of the church, and he is, Peter's clearly the leader of the 12. And remember, and they had a hierarchical structure. And it's always Peter's job to speak up. And if anyone else speaks up, they're speaking out of turn. Hey, you didn't ask Peter. It's going to be Peter's responsibility. So when Jesus goes to wash the disciples' feet, Peter says, no, you can't wash my feet. He has to speak up. If Peter lets Jesus wash his feet, then we can let Jesus watch our, wash our feet also. Now, Peter says, it says he took him aside. I was, I'm going to rebuke you, but not publicly, because I'm not going to, I can't shame you publicly. But, but this is, this is like not kosher, right? Because Peter is not, Jesus is the rabbi. Jesus is the teacher. He's the Lord. And Peter's not. Yet, Jesus, you're out of line here. You are the Christ. Remember, that's the confession. You're the Christ. Exactly. And then verse 31, I'm the, the son of man, which we'll go into detail perhaps later, but son of man is a title probably from the gospel, from the book of Daniel. He's the messianic creature, a person in the book of Daniel, who's the representative of the people of Israel. So the son of man in Daniel is the people of God. And he's saying, I am that representative of that person. Then, and I'm going to suffer. And, and Peter's like, no, you, you got it all backwards. Turning around and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interests. So if the point of follow me in this passage is to follow me to the way of the cross, what Peter's trying to do is say, you're the Christ, but the Christ that we want is one that doesn't go through suffering. We want a kingdom that's established without, by circumventing suffering or by eliminating suffering altogether. And she's like, no, actually, I'm going to suffer. And then you're going to take up your crosses and follow me. A kingdom, the kingdom of God is built on the suffering of God's people. That's how it's built. And that's one of the theses that I have in my commentary on the book of Revelation that I'm writing right now. That's have, how the nations are converted. Yes, please. Linda. Another question. Is his, is his rebuking? Is his rebuke kind of on the harsh side in a sense to, I mean, you know, okay. I mean, he knows those guys don't get it all, you know, don't That's crack. Right. But, but the difference is this. So I think our next study is going to be on what's the kingdom of God. And what you're going to see is that in the scriptures, there are two kingdoms. There are the kingdoms, plural of the world. That's one kingdom, which is made up of all the different kingdoms of the world. And then there's the kingdom of God. What, we, what we're learning in this study is Jesus is Lord, meaning he's the king of, that, of the kingdom of God. That's, that's the first key thing of what the gospel means is that he's Lord and all the things that that means. And that also means that he's the king of the kingdom of God. Satan is the ruler of the kingdoms of the world. When the devil comes to tempt Jesus, the devil says, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world. Now, that's exactly what the father was going to give him as well. I'm going to put all things under your feet, it says in the Psalms. The question is, is how do you want to obtain it? The devil says, I got a way to obtain it without the suffering part. Do you want it or not? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to do the will of God. And the will of God is the way of suffering. In other words, the way of Satan is the way of not suffering. And the way of Jesus is the way of suffering. So when Peter says, no, Jesus, we're not going to suffer, he's actually being influenced by the devil and the kingdoms of the world and the way they do things. So it's more uh, yeah. referring to a way of doing things more than just um, he's calling them the worst name that he could call them. It's yeah, more right. than and, and we would say he's not possessed by the devil, but he's influenced by the devil. He's deceived by the devil. 
That's what the devil is. He's a, he's a deceiver. Right, right. I said, yeah. I, I get you. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, and, and by the way, this is actually another interesting point. The gospel of Mark has uh, one of the questions that we ask, you know, is the, the legitimacy, the historicity of these books. You know, how can we trust these books? Are they trustworthy? They're kind of written, obviously, with Jesus' followers in mind. How do we know they're not making the things up? If you're making this whole story up, the gospel is, is a fabrication. Maybe, maybe Jesus actually lived, and maybe he really was crucified, but the resurrection thing is just a hoax. Peter is the leader of this hoax. And having Jesus call Peter Satan, or get behind me, Satan, it, you see how problematic it is, right? It caused you to ask, well, what does this mean? You can imagine that other readers are going to go, hey, what is it? why would he do that? It, it has to be a true event. And this, this story has to be legitimate because there's no way you would make up a story where Jesus said, hey, you know, the leader of our gang, I was even influenced by the devil one time. Well, we think you're influenced by the devil right now, telling us about a resurrection. You can see the historical credibility in the story, especially and if you keep reading, by the way, the way they portray the disciples constantly. Women are always get it right. The men almost never do, and the disciples never do. And we'll see some more stories about that as we, as we move on. So, okay, sidebar now. Let's, let's, get, let's get on to the text. So verse 34 to 38 is the key. I think this is one of the key passages in the entire New Testament. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I strongly encourage you just to sit down and spend a few weeks or more reading it every single day, several times a day, eventually memorizing the passage, because this is the, the key definition, description of what a disciple is. And that is, take up your cross and follow me. Now, I think this explains, and this is a sidebar also, why were there thousands of people following? There, there were so many crowds of following Jesus. They were pressing in on him and they were a hindrance to him. And he feeds 5,000, which might've been 12,000, depending on how you count, whether women and children are counted or not. There are thousands of people following him. Yet, when you get to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter one, there's only 120 in the upper room. Why? Why are only 120 following him? Because now they begin to figure out, oh, he really actually does mean take up this cross and follow me. I'm not in for this. I thought that was just another nice parabolic saying he meant, and we'd figure out the meaning of it someday. No, he means actually taking up your crosses and following me. I'm out. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, by the way, the gospel of Luke, Mark's gospel was likely written first. And Matthew and Luke are clearly using Mark's gospel as kind of an outline, a, a template. And then they add stories and supplement. And that's why Mark's gospel is shorter, because Matthew and Luke kind of add stories to it as they, own, as they wish. In Luke's gospel, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, Luke adds the word daily. Uh, take up your cross daily and follow me. Right? And if you haven't been on the podcast yet, I, I did an interview with Michael Gorman or I don't think that he was with me that day, actually. So Michael Gorman is one of the premier New Testament scholars in the world. He just, he, I'm not making that up. He really is. He's also one of the really, really nice guys in the world. And he has written a lot on Mark. Uh, I'm sorry, on Paul and the letters of Paul. And his first and most significant work was, was called Cruciformity, where he took two words, crucified and conformed, and smashed them together and said, this is what the Christian life looks like. It looks like conforming to the way of the cross. And of course, the, the best passage for that is Philippians 2, through 1 through 11, right? And that's, you know, consider others better than yourselves. Have this attitude among yourselves as that which was in Christ Jesus, and who was in very nature God, but humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So Jesus is the model. So, so I think because follow me is I'm going to the way of the cross, and now you go the way of the cross. 
And the way of the cross is not just like suffering. Oh, woe is me. I'm suffering because, you know, Christians, people don't like me because I'm a Christian. No, they don't like you because you're a jerk. But that's another point. No, we're suffering the way of cross bearing. And what the cross emulates is the fact means is he did it for the sake of the other. When he's on the cross, they even say, you saved others, now save yourself. And the answer is, if he saves himself, he condemns them all. In order to save others, he has to go through the way of the cross. So when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he means live your life in such a way that you're dying for the sake of the other. But Ephesians 5, this mutual submission, submit yourselves to one another. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. Cross-bearing life is for the sake of the other. When they persecute you because you're a jerk, probably deserve it. But when they persecute us because we love them no matter what they do to us, and we care for them, and we feed the people that they're trying to dispose and discard, and then, yeah, you know, you guys are irritants. Yeah, well, sorry about that, but I love you. Oh, oh shut up. You know, right? That's what it means. Any questions, comments, thoughts? Snyder Marks. I read, a, um, I read a real quick. Yeah, go ahead, please. I read a book once from an ice climber who took a fall in a crevasse and was in there for a couple of days, nearly died the whole bit. And he oh, was wow. a believer, but yeah, very, very powerful book. But he made an interesting analogy in that he said, we take up the cross and we take up the cross by today's standards. And what he meant was we look at the, the life of Jesus and the crucifixion and he was dead within a short period of time. Mm -hmm. But crucifixion in its true form was a very long drawn yeah. out process, sometimes up to a week. So it's a slow death to self. And he kind of correlated it with our sanctification because we're slowly dying to things of our past if yeah, we're on yeah. the right path. So it is a long process. We don't just go that cross and die overnight. But in that process, do we continually seek out, meet, and, and, and model Jesus? So This is really the theme in the book of Colossians, big theme in the book of Colossians of modeling your, your life as, as in the way of the cross also. So it's the theme of the entire New Testament, let's be honest. The book of yeah. Revelation, of course. I'm only going to look at the next passage. We're going to skip the last one because we won't get to it tonight. Calling the, the parable of the rich young ruler. He's not called a ruler. But nonetheless, we think he's a rich young ruler because you take Luke's version of the story and Mark's version of the story and put it together. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do? Now, I'm going to ask you a tricky question. It's kind of a trick question, but I'm going to I'll call it a tricky one. Verse 17, a good teacher, Mark 10, verse 17. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So what's the answer to that question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Everyone's afraid to answer because I'm like, it's a tricky question. Like, no, actually, it's really easy, so it can't be right. Uh, the really easy answer must be wrong. Right? What's the really easy answer? Sell everything, and right? Isn't that where he said, go sell everything you have? Okay, all right. Well, give it to the sure. poor. And I'm thinking you, of more the uh, theological answer that we all want to give at this point. Well, follow Jesus. Follow oh, okay, all right, follow him. You're answering the question better than I expected. If you were seminary trained, if you are a pastor, you would know the answer is there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. Only God can grant salvation, right? There, there's your the and we have these theological answers to this. And of course, Jesus actually, he kind of says that in, at the end of this particular passage here, uh, verse 27, right, right, right. Uh, with men, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So there you go. That's the theological answer that we want to give because God's sovereign. God chooses you. He gives you grace. You only respond in faith. You can't do good works, right? We have all this, this anti-good works theology coming in here. But I think actually we learned the answer last week in last week's study. Last week's study was, scribe comes and asks Jesus, 
what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says to him, this is Luke's gospel. Jesus says to him, well, you tell me, how does it, how do you read it? And the scribe quotes the two great commandments of Jesus, which clearly means Jesus has been teaching this before. They heard it. They weren't surprised, but they're trying to trap him in a statement. And so the scribe says, well, the first commandment is love the Lord your God. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, exactly, do this and you will live. So another answer, I know it's, I'm not going to deny the theological answer that there's nothing you can do with, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Okay. And God chooses you. It's by grace you've been saved. But he does say, do this and you will live. And the do this is the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then says, well, okay, well you know the commandments. And he, quotes the, and he essentially quotes the Ten Commandments, but he doesn't quote them all. And he adds in, do not defraud, which is interesting, by the way, right? Because that's not one of the Ten Commandments, do not defraud. Responds in verse 20, says, teacher, I've, I've kept all these since I was a kid, since I was a youth. And look what it says. And Jesus felt a love for him. Wow. All right. I really feel for you because I think maybe you actually kind of mean it. So he says, okay, well, great. Here's the deal. So go, uh, one thing you lack, verse 21, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Now, I think a way to summarize this would be saying that this is the two great commandments. To follow me is to love the Lord your God. That's the whole idea. And if you love me and you want to follow me, then you'll go give to the poor. If you go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and come follow me, now you're loving your neighbor as yourself. And it says, he went away grieved because he owned much property. Jesus said how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say it's easier for a camel to go through eye of a needle than for uh, a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But what's interesting about this story is that actually earlier in, the earlier in chapter 10, verse 13 through 16, he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Some people, Jesus says, you can come to me without hindrance at all. But this guy, you got to sell all you possess and give to the poor and then come follow him. He doesn't actually... So I don't want you to take from this to go, oh, okay, well, discipleship means I have to sell all I possess. No, he actually doesn't do that. He may ask you to sell everything, but sometimes I think he gives us wealth so that we can use it for his kingdom. Oh, great. Hey, these are kingdom people. I'm going to give them a lot of wealth because I know they're going to use it for kingdom purposes. And sometimes he knows, yeah, but that one can't handle it. It's going to be too much of a problem in their, in their walk. Uh, this man's asked to sell all he possesses and give to the poor and come follow me. But there's that follow me. So the point then is he doesn't always ask, for you to sell everything and follow him, but sometimes he does. Could, could this not necessarily be so much about specifically this man's financial treasure, but maybe what any of us are, are harboring is a treasure in ourselves. Mm -hmm, exactly. And more like, you know, what, you, what are, what are you still hanging on to that's exactly. keeping you from fully right. investing in God? Exactly. That is what you need to give up. That's right. That's right. Okay. And I don't think we're going to have a counseling session now by going, okay, let's go around the room and everybody name something. But, but actually, it's really, it can be powerful. I don't know that we'd all be completely honest, at the, which is okay, because yeah. it's probably not appropriate to be honest that deeply in, in a group setting like this. But yeah, we all have stuff. We do. We just, we have stuff that like, okay, yeah, I'm good with everything there, but not, not, not my new driver, right? Like, yeah, I can't, not, not that. I need, I mean, how am I going to play golf? I'm going to go back to my old one. That's no good, right? Yes. Gracie, you stop laughing. Okay. Um, yeah, she knows too much. 
Um, yeah, and you're not even on mute. Yeah, they're, they're just kidding. No, that's okay. It's okay, Grace. I'm just, I'm just joking with you. But yeah, I mean, what do we have? It's, is it our pride, um, jobs, our income, our home? You know, Jesus himself said this, you can't serve God and mammon, right? And mammon is the Greek word actually is, is mammon. It's how it's translated, um, transliterated. So mammon means wealth or anything of value that's a hindrance before putting it before God. So you might want to read Matthew 6, 19 okay. to 34. Yeah, 19 to 34. So it's just, uh, there you go. Uh, I think you pointed out that there's an assumption on people's parts that that. Okay, the rest of the passage is really cool too. Of course, Peter's like, hey, we did that. We, we left everything to follow you. And Jesus answers, exactly. You, you, you'll receive a hundred times as much, but you're going to receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, along with persecutions. Oh, I didn't didn't ask for that part. And the age to come, eternal life. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.